Welcome to Magic and Mayhem. Discover the secrets to creating magnificent books for kids and teens. Magic and Mayhem is a free podcast and ebook series brought to you by the Australian Writer Centre. If you're interested in writing for kids and teens, join us on a journey that's set to inspire and enhance your own writing skills. Download your free Magic and Mayhem ebook at magicandmayhem.com.au. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm founder of the Australian Writers' Centre and I'm so thrilled to bring you this curated series of interviews. You'll hear from picture book authors, chapter book authors, middle grade authors, young adult authors and also from publishers in the children's writing industry. So you'll get a wonderful overview on how to write books for kids and teens. Lauren Child almost needs no introduction. Anyone who has kids will know about her books. Her picture book series, Charlie and Lola, is an international bestseller and is also now a TV show. Lauren's series for young readers, Clarice Bean, is equally popular and it was a character in these books that led her to her next middle grade adventure series, Ruby Redford. Now, Lauren is one of those rare combinations. She's both an illustrator and a writer. As you'll hear in my conversation with her, she actually started off drawing, but felt that learning to write would be helpful. She's now written or illustrated more than 40 books, won a stack of awards, and is also the UK's Children's Laureate for 2017 to 2019. Do you have an idea for a children's book series? Or maybe you're inspired by people like Lauren and would love to branch out into writing your own stories for young readers. Writing chapter books for six to nine-year-olds is a wonderful introductory course to check out. Learn more about the themes and characters that keep kids turning those pages. Just go to writercentercomau slash chapter for current course dates. So Lauren, thanks for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> now you've written picture books as well as novels, but let's just start with your most recent book which is the sixth book in the ruby redford series blink and you mm-hmm. die for those readers yep. who haven't read the book yet or the series yet can you tell us what it's about um yes there uh, w- w- which one all of the whole series you mean y- yes you the, about? maybe just a little snapshot of the series and then specifically the series. yeah think the final die. one mm. okay um well, they're about a 13-year-old American school kid who, who is very, very bright and brilliant at creating codes and decoding codes. And she gets recruited by this secret agency who live underneath the city or have their offices underneath the city of Twinford, where this this child lives and it all has to be completely secret no one is to know um, about this life that she's leading she's leading this double life and um, so it's a lot uh, about how she keeps that secret and how she has to carry on going to school and she has to carry on um, hanging out with her friends and doing all the normal sort of things that you would do mm. and yet has, has this sort of life and death um, sort of job going on. <laughs> so a job that involves, you know, really ridiculous things like, you know, walking up a 
skyscraper and you know investigating all of these things and doing kung fu and parkour and so there's a very sort of silly and exaggerated side to it but hopefully it does keep you on the edge of your seat and then there's always codes in it that you you can decode if you're if you're if you've got the the wherewithal to do it Yes. Now, you first started writing about the character Ruby Redford some years ago, uh, before mm-hmm. the series started, in fact. So can you tell us mm. how that evolved and how she ended up with her own hugely successful series? Yes. What happened was, I was, I was I'd written uh, Clarice Bean as picture book, and then they were getting sort of longer and longer, these picture books. And my editor suggested that I write um, fiction. So I started writing um, a Clarice Bean book called Ashley Me. And Clarice Bean is a sort of, um, she's a child who thinks in a very particular way. And so they're all written in her sort of stream of consciousness, you know, so she can ramble on about all kinds of things. And so they're lovely to write, but I needed something to sort of underpin Clarice. And so I brought in this device of having her compare her reality with this seemingly much more exciting fictional world. Mm. And I decided to make it as ridiculous as possible. Mm-hmm. Um so I wanted to write about something that was her teacher might think was totally pointless in terms of value of reading mm. um, because we have this debate going on. It's always going on in the UK about what is what is worth reading, what isn't worth reading. Mm-hmm. And it always frustrates me because I sort of think any book that you enjoy reading is worth reading. Mm. And so I wanted Clarice Bean to be reading this series that her teacher very much disapproves of, um, that actually she is able to prove the worth of it and why this book is so brilliant and what it can teach you. So that's really where Ruby came from. And it was written in this, as I say, very exaggerated sort of adventure sort of style. And then what happened was I started getting letters from Clarice Bean readers saying, um, are these Ruby Redfoot books real? Is it a real (laughs) series? And then we got a letter from this librarian in Kentucky (laughs) in the US saying, you know, this child keeps coming in and asking if she can get a copy of the Ruby Redfort book <laughs> and does it actually exist? And so my publisher and I thought, oh, that'd be a really good thing to make them real because there's something mm-hmm. rather exciting about the idea of a, a fiction in a fiction and then you make that real so you can actually read what Clarice is reading. So that's really how it all came about. Wow, and she sounds like she has such a cracking good time. Do you, do you also do you kind of relive? Do you kind of live vicariously through Ruby the things that you wish you would have done when you were thirteen? Um, yeah, I think I think it's a book that I would have very much enjoyed reading, which mm. 
isn't really surprising because I think probably every writer, you know, you're you're writing something that you really feel strongly about and you want to mm. explore as an idea. And yeah, and I think she's a, a character that, like Clarice, I would aspire to be, and I wish I could do all the things she does. And you, in the Ruby Redford series, there's a lot of code cracking involved, which you've mentioned. Now, how did yeah. that come about? Is that something your interest, your, like how did writing about that or including that come about? Is that no. something you're interested in personally? or And what did you have to do to get the codes right, you know, make sure that the codes worked and stuff? Mm. Well, um, first of all, it happened, it happened because I'd sort of written myself into a corner um, when I was writing the Ruby extract in Clara's Bean and nothing had to make any sense. And mm. I would just say how amazing this child was and that she could crack code and make code. Mm. And I could write anything because none of it had to join up. Mm. Um, but then when I was writing the fiction, I realized they needed to be very convincing and very good. And I, I love thriller and crime as a genre anyway and so I wanted the books to really work and be quite compelling and taxing as well to to understand Mm. and you really have to um, concentrate on what Ruby's talking about in order to decode things and I wanted it you know to be fiendishly difficult because if they're not then you would say well is she really that clever? Mm-hmm. And so I, I spoke to this maths professor. I mean, he's really the most brilliant man called Marcus de Soto. And, and, and I asked him if he would write the codes for me because I wanted them to be really interesting as well. And, um, and they and they all had to work in different ways because they're all based on the different senses. Mm. And so he's the one who wrote them. And I am interested. I'm very interested in codes. I, not that I'm, I'm, I have any kind of um, ability to decipher them, but I, I think it's something that a lot of us are, are fascinated with because mm. it's all about secrets and messages and puzzles. And also, there's been so much talk about the Enigma Code, Mm. um, particularly recently, um, because with all the the anniversary of the um, Second World War and things. So it's really, it's, you know, it's really been very much um, in our news. And I think children get fascinated um, in what's going on, you know, in in the world now. And then you can look back and you can see how powerful codes were in history. Mm. It's, um, uh, and it's, and certainly it's a lot of fun. Did you, uh, it was kind of handy that you knew like a code making pr- professor of mathematics in your life in order to be well, able to do Well, I didn't know this. him. That was, oh, you didn't? I didn't know him at all. No, mm-hmm. it's just that he's on television. I mean, he's, he's, he's brilliant, um, on the radio and on TV back home. And he, what I did know about him is he's very interested in explaining maths to children and um, um, communicating with children and taking that sort of barrier or sort of fear away from them. And so I knew that 
there was a good chance he might um, take part in this. And it was my publisher who who sort of she didn't know him, but he I think he works with Fourth Estate, I think. So I think there was some connection. And so you also illustrate some books. Did you start off as a writer or illustrator? Uh, I really, I started off, I suppose, really naturally I was an illustrator and I learned to write because it was very hard to get any, any illustration work without generating something as well. Um, I think it's quite a hard thing to break into illustration because people have their sort of pet people that they like working with or, you know, and, and it's, you know, I can understand that because it's a big leap for a writer mm. um, to take a chance on a new illustrator. Um, so I, 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 I suppose that's why I started doing my own books. And then I find it easier actually illustrating my own work, which is, I've had a chance to sit with it and I know what things are going to look like. Whereas if, if you take on someone else's book, mm. um, I, you, you know, you have to work your way into their mind. Mm. So you've got the successful Ruby Redford series and which was born out of Clarice Bean. And prior to that, you had the phenomenally successful picture books, the Charlie and Lola picture books, which were not only, you know, bestsellers, but also made into television. Mm. Now, picture books mm. are often considered by your people as fairly simple kind of things. What do you think, though? But I think they're anything but simple for a, for a, mm. for a one that really works. That is, uh, mm. what do you think are the essential elements of a picture book um, for it to work? I suppose, yeah, I suppose if I look at the picture books that I love, then they often they often have a depth to them that you might not consciously realize is there. Mm. So, you know, I can think of a lot of books, like a book like um, Not Now, Bernard, by David McKee, which is really, it's it's deceptively simple. Mm. It's very, very funny, and it's all about a boy telling his, parents trying to, to explain to his parents that there's a monster I think it's in the garden or something and he keeps telling them they keep being too busy and saying oh just you know go off and play and then and then finally the monster eats Bernard and um, and still the parents don't notice and instead of um, there's no more Bernard so they tell the monster that it's time for bed and and in the last picture, I think, is the monster sitting in bed in his pyjamas, <laughs> in Bernard's pyjamas. And I love that because actually it's a very, very funny story and it's very appealing for children and adults. But it's also saying the way adults, you know, sometimes just don't take enough notice of what children are trying to tell them. Mm. And they think they know best and and... Um, they don't always know best, and I I love that book because it's on the child's side, mm. and I think there are you know there are so many you know books like that. I think I, another one is um, well, John Birmingham's books I think are absolutely brilliant, and um, and 
you know, a book like Grandpa, which is talking about the death of a grandparent mm. and the way it explains it really beautifully mm. um, and understand and lets the child sit with that um, problem rather than sort of be overly cheerful. So, mm. that you, you know, it, and I think we, we're always sort of avoiding saying things to children, which is way more frightening than actually explaining things properly. Mm. So um, I think that that book explored grief and loss really beautifully. Mm. When you're writing novel-length kind of things, like the Ruby Redford series, Mm -hmm. um, uh, how do you approach that? Can you just give us a little bit of an overview of your creative process in the sense that do you set aside a certain time of day that's dedicated to writing? Do you try to achieve a certain number of words or hours or anything like that? Is it a set five days a week? Just how does that actually look on a practical level, like your daily writing Mm. routine? Um, I wish I could say I have one. I I, I know all these these writers, you know, like Stephen King, who seems to get up, write his 2,000 words or however many words he writes and, and then finishes by lunchtime and goes for a walk. Or, and and I, I, I wish I was like that. I'm, I'm not, I'm just not like that. And I think it's partly because there are so many other things that I have to do. And so I tend to work every day um, um, and certainly writing a novel because those novels are very very long mm. I work as many days as I can but then there are other things that you have to do um, answer emails do promotion um, you know all, all the sort of domestic things you have to do as well collect your daughter from school and mm. so I I don't have a sort of set very um, rigid um, schedule of work. I just work when I can work. And what I did find writing Ruby is as I would get towards the end of a book, I'd work through the night because that allowed me to work without wretched emails and telephone calls and things coming in because even if you don't answer them, even if mm. you don't look at them, you know they're there. And I find it very, very distracting and I would love it if I didn't have to get involved with those sort of things. But I do <laughs> because, you know, a publisher will send you, say, a piece of, you know, a blurb for a catalogue and you have to approve it. <laughs> and so you're constantly stopping and starting. And um, so I've yet to find the best possible way of working and certainly haven't achieved, achieved <laughs> that. Um, but sometimes I go away and... Um, I've sort of booked myself into a hotel for a few days just so nobody can contact me. Yes. But what I'd love to get an, a sense of is when you're writing, you know, long novels versus when mm-hmm. you're writing much, 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 much shorter picture books, mm-hmm. I'd just love to get a sense of the different way you approach it. Like obviously you, nav- you, have, mm-hmm. it, it, obviously you have to complete so many more words with a yep. novel and, and do you plan it out like, okay, I've got to finish this in three months and I'm going to achieve – these sorts of milestones or how do they compare because there's such different um requirements yeah. 
Um, I suppose with the pitch book stories, I don't write them in one go and I don't sit down and try and write a whole story. I write the first bit of it. So if I have an idea for it, I'll jot it down. And then I might keep revisiting it. And sometimes they're revisited over a number of years. And and then finally I know what I'm trying to say. So they get edited and edited and edited by me. And sometimes they they change course as well. So I think it's going to be about one thing. Mm. And then it's not. It's about something completely different. And sometimes I might... I think it was with the Hubert Horatio story... I just couldn't quite think how to end it. And I remember reading it to a friend of mine because I was just, I was really stuck. And sometimes reading them out loud is really helpful. And he happened to be there and he just came up with this really good idea that it, that I needed to sort of bookend it with the child coming in with um, his, his cocoa and how it was still hot at the end and and it was just him saying that just completed the book and so mm-hmm. often they are written in that way that, that they, it can go for years and years mm. without me finding an ending or a point mm. to it with the with the novels they, it's very different because they are all contracted yes so, um you have no choice. I don't have that freedom <laughs> or luxury. They have to be written within mm. a year. And probably it's very lucky because otherwise I don't probably I'd be on book two of Ruby Redford because <laughs> there's always a better idea and they're really hard to do and so I'd probably walk away from it. Um but it's it that you're you're right when when you say do you um you know figure out how many words you have to write in order to complete it. It's terrifying when you get to the last three months and you realise, oh, I've still got 20,000 words to write. (laughs) And that's terrifying because then you do the sort of sum in your head of how many words you're going to need to write per day. Mm. And given that there are some days where you erase absolutely everything you've written because it's not good enough, Mm. you know, that really... It puts pressure on you, but I think it's probably the pressure that helps me get it done. Mm-hmm. With the novels, do you, especially with something like uh, a thirteen-year-old girl who's doing these, you know, exciting adventures mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, and she's contracted by an agency. With them, do you have a plot? before you get to the end have you already plotted it out do you know what's going to happen because you know you've got to involve all these codes and stuff like that or do Mm. you let things unfold as you write i let things unfold i i i I, yep i usually well i think i always wrote the prologue piece so i always had a sort of back in time piece and that's just Mm. set the scene for me Mm. and i would know what kind of code it was going to be. Not how a code would work, but I knew, is it going to be a smell code or is it going to be a taste code? Mm. So I decided that. And I jotted down perhaps a few things that I might be interested in. So I remember doing the poison book and I remember thinking, oh, I want to use snakes because I'd done lots and lots of research on snakes for an earlier book and I was really interested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I thought, oh, actually, they'll work. I took them out of the second book or the third book because I thought, oh, yeah, they're going to be really nice to use in the the book about poison. Mm-hmm. And that had a taste code. And so there were lots of... Then once you've got that in place, you can see all the things that might link up beautifully. And, um, and then I was researching things and, and TED Talks and things all about poison and up came mm. this talk about sugar and how mm-hmm. you know some people see sugar as a poison because of some of the things it can do to your liver and that was really interesting and then you start following these little um, chains mm. of ideas and theory and thought and um, it doesn't necessarily mean everything gets used but, for example, what I learned was that that babies have got many more taste buds than adults, and they're mm-hmm. born with more taste buds. And I always thought that the reason they rejected particular tastes is because, you know, their palate isn't as sophisticated as ours, when in mm. fact, the way it's more sophisticated is it's got much... It's you know it's got all these little taste sensors, so they find everything much stronger than we do. Right. So salty for them is really salty, <laughs> and I just thought that was fascinating. So um, yeah, so lots and lots of um, ideas all starting to weave together without me consciously thinking about it, and then and then you look at your piece of paper and you think, oh, those things join up and those mm. things don't and so then I'll just erase the things that just aren't working and you have to be quite brutal if you work without a plot because mm. um, it, it's about letting a plot appear it's about letting what appear a plot sort of evolve uh, in its own oh, way right. yeah, letting you're sort of not mm. yeah yeah and so if you've got a character that does that does go on these adventures, like climb, it has to climb up the side of a building or does parkour. What kind of level of research do you do on something like that? Oh, quite a do lot, actually. you go and actually. do parkour? Um, <laughs> well, I didn't go that far, and I, I should have done, really, because I, I met, I, met um, I got in touch with somebody um, via a friend, who was a you know hardened parkour um practitioner and she it was great for me because she was a a woman in her 20s and she really was passionate about it and so I sort of interviewed her having watched a lot of it on YouTube and Mm. and so you get a sense of the beauty of it it's like watching Mm. ballet almost Mm. um and then I talked to her about how she felt when she was doing it and all the theory and um, and feeling behind it because it's quite a meditative thing. It's not just about exercise or right. doing something for the sake of doing it. There is, it's about mind and body. And that really interests me, interested me because it's, it's, a, it's almost about not taking risk. It's about doing something with and being utterly prepared for it so it's the absolute opposite of this other thing that's got quite big now of sort of crane hanging and all of those mm. things where you go and do something to scare yourself or challenge yourself 
and parkour is the absolute opposite of that. Um, and then she introduced me to this guy called Sebastien, who was from Paris, and he's credited with um, inventing parkour. And he and his friend mm. began doing it in the housing estates of um, the, of Paris because mm. they didn't have anywhere to play, and it was a way mm. of making a world for themselves in this sort of concrete jungle. And it was mm. fascinating talking to him. So. In that way, I did quite a lot of research mm. um, because I wanted it to be really convincing and I didn't want a child to read it who practices parkour and thinks, well, that's just not what it's like. Mm. What's yeah. some of the other um, interesting avenues that your research has taken you down? Um, I think things like uh, the gorilla test, which um, I can't remember which book it's in now. I think it must be in Feel the Fear. Um, and I was actually looking up something else and my sister was helping me do some research because she loves all of that and we stumbled upon the gorilla test which is um, how we get um, blind to things um, going on um, because we, we get distraction distracted by something else and so we don't notice something incredibly obvious moving mm. in front in front of our eyes and I thought that was a really interesting thing and that was just a a lucky stumbling upon something that mm. then became the linchpin for the entire book um, so yeah sometimes things happen like that what's next for you what are you working on now I'm working on a young fiction which is going to be very very illustrated Young as in um, what, what age? Um, oh, I guess, I suppose it just sort of depends on on what, how the reader is, but probably seven to nine will be the okay. core. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, and it's going to be very illustrated. Yeah, highly, highly illustrated, black and white, but um, yeah. What do you need to do to change hats between something like Ruby Redford and Charlie and Lola? Because obviously they're completely different. Age groups. So, what do you need to do to switch gears? Is there anything you you do? Some people, you know, put on music. Some people get in a different zone. Um, what do you do? Um, I don't know. I'm just interested in in both their worlds, I suppose. So it's just a different thing that I really enjoy. So it doesn't feel it doesn't really feel like I need to do anything. Really? Uh, it's very easy. I mean, when I first started Ruby, I'd listened to a lot of music and mm. I'd just select music that felt like it would come from Ruby's world. Um, but now I don't really need to do any of that. So yeah. it's just very easy to switch. How did you know that music would have come from Ruby's world? I just feel it. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And finally, what's your advice for aspiring writers who hope to be in a position like you are one day where they can say they have their own best-selling series of books or even just their first book out? Oh, and what, what would I suggest they do in order to write? It, in to improve their writing. Um, well, the obvious answer, and, and it's, a, you know, it's, it's genuine, is, is to read. Because yeah. by reading, you really understand all the different ways of writing. Mm -hmm. um, and 
and don't be trapped into thinking you can't write just because um you know a particular way you've tried doesn't suit you because then there are so many different ways of telling a story and writing a story and i i i i wrote clara's bean which is my first book by um by doing it like i'd always done it as a child which is to write a comic and so i started writing and drawing together and that's the way that um i think it it i think it just allowed me to become confident as a writer and realize that I could do it. So, um, and that's what picture book can be quite a lot because the writing and the pictures are sort of in equal, you know, they, they're equally important. Mm. So I think that really helped me. But there are so many other ways of writing a story. So I think, I think it's really about understanding that I mean, watching films can also really help too. Mm, mm. Great advice, uh, and you know, okay. good luck with uh, the Thank next you. thing you're, you're working on. We look forward to when it comes out. Thanks so much for your time, Thank Lauren. You. Okay, pleasure. Thank you. It's interesting how Lauren, who is a very successful kids author, still has to do battle with all the things that we all do, emails and distractions, taking kids to school, phone calls and so on. Because of that, her routine is quite organic and she's always stopping and starting. It can take her years to work through an idea as she revisits it and plays with it. Of course, with her novels, Lauren has deadlines, so she has to find a bit more structure. I like that she'll sometimes take herself off to a hotel for a few days just to get away from it all. I've spoken to a lot of authors over the years who do something similar, a kind of DIY retreat, just to give you that little bit of peace to finish a project. It was also interesting to hear how Lauren talks to experts to make sure what she writes is authentic. She could have just made up some codes herself. But no, she went to a maths professor and spoke to parkour experts. Writing for children isn't just about making stuff up. It still has to feel authentic. As Lauren said at the end, there are many ways to tell a story, so if you're feeling stuck, take a look at your manuscript. Maybe you just need to write it a different way. And if you want to find a writing community that could just be the tribe you're looking for, go to writercentre.com.au and sign up to our weekly newsletter. That's writercentre.com.au.